Hello and welcome back to Fertility Talks, the Therapy Fertility Podcast. I'm your host, Renee Von Nedding, and this season I'll be sitting down with none other than Medical Director of Therapy Fertility, Dr. John Kennedy. Each week we will be chatting all things fertility, trying to conceive and much, much more. We hope that through this series, through honest conversation and information, we can strip away some of the stigma that sometimes comes hand in hand with infertility and fertility treatment in Ireland. So this week, I'm very excited to say that we're going to be discussing a topic very close to my heart. It's actually the reason I became so involved in the fertility world. And I know that John is also very excited about this topic. It is reciprocal IVF. Absolutely. And I think all everything we've done so far has just been a soft excuse for you to talk about this. <laughs> it's um, all been yeah, leading, so leading up, up to this. this. And then we can cut it here. I'm going to be like, I'm done. Yeah. Once, once we have this in the bag, it's, it's fine. So um, I suppose from a, a medical and fertility point of view, what is reciprocal IVF? So the idea of reciprocal IVF, it's a variant of IVF. <clears throat> that's going to be performed uh, with a couple where you have two two females. What's going to happen is you're going to stimulate and do standard IVF on one party. You're going to collect eggs. You're going to fertilize those eggs, usually with the addition of donor sperm, although that's something to be looked at, and then generating embryos and then transferring those embryos in a timely and safe fashion into the other member of the couple. So they carry the other their partner's genetic child so one person becomes the genetic parent mm -hmm. and the other the gestational parent. exactly or and now ireland's funny you know this um it defines motherhood or being a mother as having a baby come out of you exit you physically yes uh which is obviously somewhat antiquated mm -hmm. as a notion Very and much. doesn't doesn't take into account surrogacy and mm -hmm. things and, and, and things like this so one of the things we'll need to talk about is how parents are recognized mm. and certainly in ireland one party can be recognized as the mother and the other can be recognized as a parent yeah so why were you so excited to um start offering this service well, it's it's just elegant i think <laughs> um it's it's sort of clever and I mean, so everything I say here today has to be put through the lens of the cis hetero white male, you know, <laughs> and but whenever you have a female couple in front of you, generally, a lot of the time they'll have an idea that I want to get pregnant and my partner doesn't want to get pregnant or something, something like that. But always at the back of your mind, you're thinking, I've got potentially two bites of the cherry here. Yeah. You know, if I can get this unit, a child or children, then that's success. And if it's not working out over here, then I've got then I've got a plan B. And you have two sets of ovaries and you have two uteruses and the couple are sharing the journey. And I've always felt the donor sperm for a heterosexual couple. I think they do very well with it. I think guys do really, really well when they have to use donor sperm. Mm -hmm. That would certainly be my experience. But it always feels like a bit of a mean trick. Mm -hmm. Like they're very divorced from the proceedings. They're divorced from the proceedings genetically and uh, their support and all the rest. And but they don't they physically have to do anything. Exactly. And I imagine it must be somewhat similar for same-sex female couples mm -hmm. 
who are using donor sperm, that the person who gets pregnant and the person who carries the child and the person who gives birth is mum and the other one is mum's partner. Mm. You know? It can feel like that, absolutely, yeah. And this is a really elegant way of completely sharing the journey and mixing all of that in and the nature and the nurture and it's all... It's just, when it works, it's really, really elegant. Yeah. I think it's it's very, very pretty. Yeah. So I'll tell you about when I first heard about reciprocal IVF. Um, it was when my wife and I had started talking about wanting to do some form of fertility treatment. And we knew we would have to use donor sperm and mm. it would be like IVF or IUI. We didn't really know what that actually meant at the time. These were just phrases that were thrown around. Yep. And... Um, we, we were actually having a glass of wine or something one night and we said, wouldn't it be so cool if, you know, because I knew I wanted to be physically pregnant, but we said, wouldn't it be great if we could use your eggs, Audrey, and mm-hmm. have embryos and then I could carry them because that way we'd both really physically be involved in this process. Yeah. And we were like, ah, that sounds like really bizarre like and then we googled it and sure enough it it, it, you know it was a thing called reciprocal IVF and but it was relatively new so 2009 in Spain I believe was when was when they first started offering it um so in the in the scheme of things it's it's not too long that it's been offered no not at all and I mean there's nothing challenging about it medically versus conventional Mm. IVF. It's it's just the same. I mean, the process is identical. It's just decoupled kind of a little bit. Yeah. And you take eggs, you take sperm, you make embryos, you do embryo transfers. Yeah. It's, you know, so aside from that, there's obviously a lot of paperwork mm. and checking and even still a lot of the systems that are in place uh, for the monitoring and assessment of the mm. of, of cycles struggle a little bit with the idea that two females could co-own yeah. embryos. And is that just in Ireland? We're kind of No, no, with that I just th- I think it's the nature of the software systems mm. and the like it's okay who owns these embryos yeah. and they have to be assigned to somebody. Mm. It, they can't really be we we haven't I haven't seen a system where the embryos are assigned to a couple. Mm. So traditionally the embryos would be assigned to whoever is eggs they came from so the female in a heterosexual couple exactly right? or if it was a known donation a known egg donor mm. cycle then the embryos would be assigned to the person who was going to take ownership of the embryos totally sure. <clears throat> but for reciprocal IVF the own, the embryos are very much owned by the couple jointly mm. and can be dispersed of and transferred between that couple yep. as and when they want so what you do do you you can't put the embryos the system won't let you have them both on. <laughs> Computer them. So says no. <laughs> you all have to, you have to put them all on this side and then, okay, but she's going to do the transfer. So I'll just take one and put it over there. Or do we put them all over? Yeah. It's just a little logistics exercise for us in the background. Mm. The consent forms in this are ridiculously clear. Yeah. The embryos are owned by the couple jointly and cannot be used without the express consent of, of both, both parties. parties. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, when the licenses finally came into the Irish clinics. Mm-hmm. That was what, 2019, I believe? 2018, 2019. In I believe it was 2019. Well, you'd know better. Be- and the reason I think this is because um, our youngest daughter was eight months old at the time when I heard. 
I got lots of people messaging me and being like, oh my God, did you hear that Reciprocal IVF, you can do it in Ireland now? And obviously we had gone abroad, we Mm -hmm. had done this whole thing. And I was a little bit pissed, (laughs) to be honest, (laughs) when I heard, because I was like, well, we've gone to all this trouble of going abroad and now you can just get it done here. Um, But you know what? That was quickly followed by immense joy at the opportunity for so many people to experience this treatment in Ireland and not have to travel. Exactly. And I think the the clinic started doing it before the legislation had caught up, Mm. if you follow me, because the CFRA, Mm. Child and Family Relationships Act, didn't didn't come into being until May 2020, I want to say. Absolutely. So so, So it preempted that. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring it in was I wanted... I wanted to get ahead of it a little bit. We have a terrible tendency, maybe in medicine or maybe in all areas in Ireland, if it's not up in our face, we go, it's not a real thing. So when I was trying to get reciprocal IVF up and running mm. in, in, in fertility clinics, I was constantly met with, nobody wants this. You are, you are going to put a lot of time and effort into making a product, as it were, or some kind of thing that people just don't want because they aren't telling us they want it. And I was like, this sounds a lot like we're not asking. This I would like- love to know who those people were. <laughs> yeah, you'd think- and I would like to turn around to those people and just point out that like, isn't a huge amount of people coming into therapy now looking for reciprocal IVF? That's a huge portion. But but of course. Of and course it, it was, is. It, it, was, it was obvious to me yeah. that that's a thing. Mm-hmm. And it was clearly obvious. No, look... When you don't offer something or when something is just not available, yeah. people reconcile themselves to that. And yeah. if they attend you, then they won't ask about it yeah. because it's very clear or else they'll go to Spain or what have you or something yeah. like that. So it's very easy to convince yourself that there's no desire. There's no demand for, for it. Yeah. There's no desire. There's no demand. And I mean, I think we're even seeing this now uh, with things like known sperm donation yeah. or new ways blended families and new oh, ways totally. of, like a lot of people would say oh there's no there's no uh, demand for known sperm donation and i can tell you categorically that is not true but but of course there is and i yeah. think that there's clever ways of fudging that you can kind of do mm-hmm. it and do it through clinics and all this i'm not saying you should but but there's ways you can you can do that but let's i mean i'm we have to challenge our own biases, mm-hmm. our implicit biases that we don't even know we're, we're carrying. And we have to be willing to throw it out there and throw it up the flagpole, see who salutes it sort of thing. And, yeah. and and if there's no demand for something, fine, fine. Yeah. But I suspect that reciprocal IVF, it's not even that an awful lot of couples want to do reciprocal IVF. I think the even wider portion is people who want it to be an option. Yeah. Of course, yeah. you know, and... They, they like the idea. I mean, I, I would still see a number of uh, female couples who are coming in who are very, very clear. No, we're just on track one here. Yep. Uh, my partner isn't interested and doesn't want to engage. And that's great. Yep. That's fine. And even then, sometimes when you start talking about it, it's like, okay, look, how do we do this? It's something, can we, can, is it something we can explore? Uh, it's, it's just great. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's great having having options for people now going forward. Yep. Let's talk about language a bit, because when um, it, I suppose, first started getting mm-hmm. marketed in Ireland, it was very much marketed as shared motherhood. Mm-hmm. And while I understand it, I understand that phrase, and I even use that phrase myself mm-hmm. many years ago, um, because it's, you know, sharing this journey. It's It's a little bit problematic for me. Please. 
And I suppose, I suppose it's because it just, it very much genders it in one sense. And it very much says that both people going through this are mothers. And I have lots of friends who very much do not identify with the idea of being a mother. They identify with, you know, being a parent. And it just, it just, it kind of pushes everybody into that box Mm -hmm. on one hand. And then on the other hand, it kind of implies in a way that people like a same-sex female couple who doesn't do reciprocal IVF or shared motherhood, if they do a standard IUI with donor sperm, that somehow they're not both sharing that journey to motherhood they're not both mothers and i don't know so for for many reasons it just it irks me a little bit and i just would prefer that we use the actual name which is reciprocal reciprocal ivf yeah and that's that's our preferred terminology we played around with the idea of shared parenthood for a while um i think it just gets a bit confusing then because it's like well isn't it all shared parenthood if you're if you're going into it with a partner, yes. no matter what way you do it, no matter if you're a heterosexual couple, you're not binary, it doesn't matter. Like it's yes. all shared parenthood, right? Yep. So that, yeah, it would just be a bit confusing. I th- and I think it goes back to implicit bias. I think it goes back to our history um, culturally mm. and what we're, what we're bringing to the table and challenging those things. What am I thinking of? When we started doing doing our consent forms. Mm. This is what's really interesting. There's loads of different ones to cover loads of different things. And the labels on them. So we had an IVF consent. A traditional IVF consent is a document made for a heterosexual couple. Mm-hmm. That is the default. IVF consent. It's There's a place for her. There's a place for him. There's a place where he signs things about sperm. There's a place yeah. where she signs things about eggs. There's a place where they both sign things about embryos yeah and so we're starting that i suddenly realized well hang on if i make ivf consent a default couple thing for starters am i gendering that mm-hmm. okay and secondly um what am i going to then call the consent form for a woman who's just going through without a partner sure with donor sperm am i going to call that ivf consent for a single woman but well, I'm obviously not going to do that because that's horrific. So don't do that. And then I had a little kind of moment of clarity. I was like, hang on a minute. The default has to be what the thing is. Mm-hmm. So the default consent is an IVF ICSI consent. And if you are going through without a partner and you're using donor sperm, it's ICSI, IVF ICSI with donor sperm. Mm-hmm. If you're a couple, it's IVF ICSI couple and if you're a couple using donor sperm it's IVF ICSI couple using donor sperm and it completely removes gender from it yep and that's I think at the heart of your difficulties perhaps with shared Mm. motherhood is that it's a gender yeah it's a genderized word in there and you're trying to move away from that now I am absolutely on board with that Mm. I do struggle a little with given the field I work in I work with ovaries and I work with testes and I work with sperm and I work with eggs and but even as we're talking, I'm trying to check myself for mm. use of language. I remember talking to you about this before. I I used to always say lesbian, yeah, a, a lesbian couple, and I have I've been educated. Thank you for this. On on that that is not 
always the case. Yeah, a lot of times it is, but not always. Not always, yeah. exactly correct. And they've been good enough not to correct me or, <laughs> you know, and that's fine. That, but, but as we learn, as we grow and trying to use the correct terminology, I do think reciprocal IVF is a better yeah. way of calling it. And that's certainly what, we'll, we, what we would be adopting going forward and trying to avoid, certainly when it comes to referencing parentage, mm. trying perhaps to avoid, and this is a real uphill struggle, trying to avoid gender roles yeah. within that. Yeah, for sure. Because, you know, I think that's the way things are moving. And yeah, it's hard, I suppose, especially in the fertility field, in the parenting world. Um, it's very traditionally gendered. Um, but yeah, I think, it, you know, the more we can kind of just move away from that and when you got married mm. did you refer to yourselves as brides both of you or did we you? did yeah. we did because to us that was very much what we were yes we both had big white dresses i was actually pregnant <laughs> getting married my wife was pregnant too <laughs> <laughs> function or disorganization yeah exactly <laughs> exactly well i mean you were long gone before i was that, long, right? gone. <laughs> long gone long <laughs> gone um, okay, so let's go back and actually talk about the process yes. of reciprocal IVF because we're kind of assuming that people know what that process yeah, and, is. And, 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 so and, let's kind of and they don't. So we, we try to be quite metric about it. So you, the couple come in, mm -hmm. they want to do reciprocal IVF. And you could make an argument, you could make quite a good argument, actually, that the testing pathways should be different for both parties mm. because one is going to be and for the purpose of this conversation i'm going to refer to recipient and donor yep the donor is the person who giving is giving the eggs who is being stimulated and providing eggs the recipient is the one who's going to be the, in receipt of the embryo transfer yep. so you would think right that the, what we need to do here is different uh we care about the ovarian reserve and the egg quality over here we care about the uterus and the ability to carry over there and there should be a clear demarcation Honestly, under ideal circumstances, I'm willing to flex. Mm. But what I would always recommend is that both members, both partners, do the standard suite of investigations. Because you might come in with an idea that you're going to be the donor and you're going to be the recipient. But it's a lot easier to get as much data you can uh, about the couple's fertility potential mm. as individuals and as a couple before you start on anything. So I generally recommend... And why is that? Is that is that like if you run into trouble down, like, you know, if you if you start one way, say, and you're stimulating one person's ovaries well, and then, you it's, know. It's not even that. Suppose I have you and Audrey mm. and you decide, just you come in and you go, Audrey definitely wants to provide the eggs mm. and I definitely want to, to be the carrier. Which um, is exactly what we did. I know. <laughs> but let's, we definitely want to. I go, okay. Well, we're just going to do that. We're going to blind ourselves. We're going to put our, put our blinkers on. We're going to go for it. And then we realize that Audrey has very few eggs. Mm. And then we realize that you have a huge fibroid in your uterus or something like uh, that. Yeah, okay. And you kind of, oh, blast. Oh, oh, it turns out actually, wow. That's going to be Audrey, very difficult. That's, that's going to present, not potentially very difficult, but it's going to present challenges mm. and extra work. And it actually turns out that you've got an astonishingly high ovarian reserve. Yeah. And, you know, is there, and then you start asking the question, you might ask the question to start, is there any flexibility in this? Yeah. 
and you'd be told, no, there's no flexibility in this. We are locked into this. And then you get told, well, if you do it this way, you've got a 20% chance of having a baby. And if you do it this way, you've got a 60% chance of yeah. having a baby. Are you still locked in? Suddenly and there might be some flexibility exactly. there. Exactly. Yeah. And you make assumptions. You make assumptions based on people's desires. You make assumptions based on people's age and history. And those assumptions aren't always correct. Mm. So what you should do before you embark on something as big and difficult and time consuming and labor intensive as reciprocal IVF, get the data. Check out the womb on both parties. Do an ovarian reserve test on both parties. They're not massively expensive tests. I'm pretty sure they're not free, but they're not massively Mm -hmm. expensive. We hope that these findings support what you want to to do do or don't skew things too badly. And it's rare that I would... The the example I gave is obviously um, hyperbolic, but... It's rare that you would be in a situation where you go, you can't. That's yeah. exaggerated. But you might manage expectations slightly yeah. differently. Frequently, a couple would come in and you would automatically instinctively think, oh, the younger party is going to be the donor here. But they'd say, actually, no, we want to go the other way yeah. because we know, yeah, you get it straight away. We don't, time is a huge factor here. So we want to do this and we've got a bit of time to play with over here. And you go, that does make sense. Mm-hmm. But then you need to have that conversation. You know, that this is yeah. difficult and yeah. you know that your chance of success might be a little bit different if you went the other way yeah. and what's your end goal. And of course, most people still stick with their plan, but it's really critically important to have those conversations. And I suppose the more information you have, the like just the more comfortable you can be with whatever decision you make in the end. The more you know, the OPSAs, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so at that point, um, you've just, so let's say you've done the testing. Yep. You've decided who's going to be the donor, who's going to be the recipient. At that point, do you choose your uh, your sperm donor, or yeah. so you do your you do your implications counselling? Mm-hmm. Did you, you never did implications counselling? Did you? Maybe that's why we're so screwed. <laughs> <laughs> you never did your sanity test. How, how do you think you would have fared? No. Look, we've done lots of other twice other other things. <laughs> <laughs> Twice today, I had to reassure people that implications counselling, which was a requirement for us. And it's included in the reciprocal idea. It is, absolutely. Um, is is um, not a sanity check. Nobody's a, getting turned away. And it's away. a good thing. It's a good thing. It's, it's information just a, It's a gathering. chat about using donor sperm. Thank you. And I think that can only be a good thing. Yep. Um, you know, obviously, we have donor-conceived children. We have lots of friends with donor-conceived children. And, you know, it's... It's a different way to have your children and there are things that it brings up for you, potentially for your children in the future, mm-hmm. for your friends and family. Mm-hmm. So it's it's important to understand yep. the, you know, the uh, <laughs> the implications of using donor sperm. I remember one case I was involved in years ago, kind of digressing a little bit. It was a woman who wanted to uh, get pregnant. Mm. And she'd gone through a few cycles. They hadn't worked. And I was recommending mm. donor egg. And she was very open to mm. the notion. We were talking out. And she just started in consult. She got upset one day. And when I probed into it, she said, no, it's just so stupid. Was, might be stupid. Come on, what's, what's going on? Historically, the members of her family had one, I think it was the third or their fourth toe, mm. that was a little bit shorter. Mm. And she... <laughs> And, and this was a loss on. for her. Yeah. yeah. And this was about her tribe and her legacy. I got it. Mm-hmm. I respect that. It mm-hmm. might sound mad, but I, I really do buy into that. You know, so the notion that 
these are things you need to explore when you bring an external tribe yeah. genetic matrix into the into the mix how is that how are you going to feel about that if you see behaviors which are different to what you would have expected from your yeah. family members are you going to ascribe that to the you probably are because we're all conversational but of course it's not that yeah. it's nature nurture all those things but those are really really important things to explore and to chat about before you before you get started so you have to do that then you got to order your donor sperm um, we're working with the sperm bank where there are pregnancy slots. So what does that mean? So that means you up front, you gr- grab a pregnancy slot, you pay a sum of money for that. If you never get pregnant or you decide to give up that pregnancy slot, you get your money back mm-hmm. on that. That pregnancy slot means that when you pick a donor, that donor will not be used for more than three, the generation of three families within Ireland. Okay, so even if they're providing to other clinics, they will not give to other clinics. Exactly, yeah. that they they they're preg- they control essentially mm-hmm. their own pregnancy slots. So, I don't quite know how necessary that is. These mm-hmm. donors are all identifiable now, so the child, not you, but the child can find out who the donor is when they're eighteen years old. So there's no real risk of consanguinity or marrying your half sister or half brother or anything like that. Um, but it is nice to have that reassurance that there aren't hordes of children running around so you have your pregnancy slot you pick your donor sperm from the the range here's a question about the donor sperm yep. is there anything magically speaking that would rule a donor out like do you have does there have to be like a match with egg and sperm no or? there doesn't need to be a match with blood type the two questions you get asked most commonly is does there need to be a blood type match the answer is mm-hmm. no there doesn't uh the other question you get asked is about a thing called uh cmv cytomegalovirus mm-hmm. which is a virus that you that if pregnant women can contract can contract anybody can contract but not in pregnancy it can have severe consequences for the pregnancy. In the UK, they screen donors and recipients for CMV. Mm. There, to the best of my knowledge, there has been no reported case of a transfer of CMV into a pregnancy from a CMV positive donor into a CMV negative recipient. So it's purely theoretical. It's never actually happened. And I do not encourage testing for CMV. Mm. I don't think you need something you need to be worried about, but it's something people often ask about. Okay. So I don't think it's a factor. I think you can go ahead with a CMV positive donor, even if you're CMV negative yourself. After that, all the donors have to sign up to uh, the Irish registry system, which is to say that they're giving permission for the treating clinics to pass their details on to the Department of Health, who will retain their information for the child to access when they're 18 years old. Okay, so other than that, you kind of just get a list and you go on and... It's it's all online and you you, you see your list of donors, you get some extra information about uh, education and background and personality and then you, you pick your donor. It's Okay. Tell me about that. How, how, what, what, I suppose the process Spain, was, so it was a bit different. different for us. Um, it kind of, yeah, our donor essentially got picked for us, um, which I know does happen quite frequently in mm-hmm. clinics, uh, whereas this process, I suppose, puts the power back into um, oh, yeah. the hands of whoever's using it, which I think is, it's it's kind of a nicer system. Yes. Um, our donor is going to, I mean, we're happy out. Like, we love our kids. And, you know, if we didn't have... <laughs> you know, although I will say that anytime um, anything happens that we don't like, oh, yeah. we just say, oh, it's with the donor. That's definitely not to do with definitely, you. Definitely, definitely not. 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 You definitely two unfit donor. parents. No, no, not at all. <laughs> um, but 
yeah, I mean, so we didn't really have much involvement in the process mm-hmm. of that, but I, I feel like this ah, this yeah. process is going to be much more... Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So generally, you would only get enough sperm to, for one round. You don't need to buy mm. piles of it. You can reserve Does, some more. It comes in a straw, right? It comes in a straw. That straw could be used for either IUI or IVF or ICSI. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, we're going to be doing IVF with it here. So you you get your one straw, you do your implications counseling, that straw, that sperm gets moved from Denmark, mm-hmm. which is where the sperm egg is, uh, over to us. And then we undertake a cycle. So we would stimulate the donor with an IVF cycle, your two weeks of injections to grow the follicles. We then do an egg collection under sedation. We take those eggs out. Procedure that takes about 10, 15 minutes, mm-hmm. not long, but usually very well tolerated. And then we would thaw that donor sperm and fertilize, leave the eggs and the sperm together. We then grow the embryos out for five days. And at day five or day six, but usually day five, we would then freeze the embryos. Okay, so this is a question. So what we're doing is a freeze-all cycle. So what does that mean? So that means we're freezing the embryos. There's, There's two ways of doing reciprocal IVF. There's trying to synchronize the cycle. So at the, around the same time as you're stimulating the donor, you're also preparing the womb of the recipient with a different medication regime mm-hmm. with estrogen and progesterone. So that when the embryo gets to day five, then you do a fresh implantation mm-hmm. into, into the recipient and then freeze any surplus embryos. That's nice in some ways. I know I'm not totally against it. It, it's a bit of a holdover from a time when the freezing and thawing wasn't really, really robust, which it is now. Mm. Now the thaw survival rate's 98, 99%, if yep. not even higher. So embryos thaw and freeze really, really well. Synchronizing the two cycles is can be challenging. Mm. If the yep. dates don't work out, yep. you can go a little bit sideways. You don't want to compromise things. And also, there is also, it's not common, but the possibility that the cycle will not result in any embryos. Mm. Uh, that for whatever reason the eggs won't fertilize normally or the embryos won't develop normally and there's no embryo for and transfer. And then you've already freeze. started the recipient on you've, medication. You've medicated and... somebody for a transfer that's never going to happen mm. um, and that's unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, so what we're doing here with, with our program is we're going to freeze all the embryos and then when we know that we're not going to delay at that point but then we're in a position to have a coherent conversation about okay now we're going we're to, ready to go. Now we're going to do that. Yeah. And I also think it it affords the couple the opportunity to have more information mm. before they undertake the treatment cycle that's actually going to try to result in a pregnancy. And so maybe if there's a higher number than anticipated of embryos, yeah. it might change how they approach things. Or if there's a lower, it might change things. So just as we were talking about earlier, knowledge is power. You get more information. You can make more coherent yeah. decisions with that as opposed to on the day being told, yeah, there's one embryo there. We've got another two. We don't know how they're going to go. We're going to keep an eye on them for another few hours. Yeah. It's it's just, it's rushed. Yeah. And that's just a little bit suboptimal. The freezing is very strong, mm. so it affords us the opportunity to do things yeah. in a slightly gentler, slower fashion. Yeah. And I believe there's some clinics in the States now that only do freeze-all cycles. For fresh cycles, absolutely. Yeah. Now, the, the logic on that is that there's a theory that the stimulation of the of the ovaries mm. can have an impact on the womb. Mm-hmm. It's still a little controversial, but there is some data there. That's not a situation that we need to worry about here because 
that womb isn't been Beam, stimulated. Yeah, yeah. So so you don't have, have quite that. I think a lot of the drive for uh, synchronized cycles came from the fact that reciprocal IVF was happening abroad. Yeah. So it was one. Oh, totally. We, we, yeah. Like for us, we, we just, it just had to all happen at once, yes. <laughs> you know, but yes. it, I can attest to the fact that it was incredibly stressful trying to sync up cycles and not know if there was going to be anything to transfer. And it was just like, we were just lucky, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think you, it, it's less. And I mean, with the best will in the world, the medications have side effects. Mm. And a lot of the time when you're going through something, it's really nice to have somebody there to help support you through it as opposed to somebody who's also going also through going their through, own yeah. pain which might be a little bit different and well i don't know i can't speak to speak to the conversation i'm on all these injections oh, i'm on tablets you're already on tablets you're not on injections you know <laughs> I, it's, uh, I was on injections too were you yeah i definitely well maybe it was just maybe it was just the very like towards the mm-hmm. transfer i was on something yeah. i can't even remember what yeah. it was yeah you weren't on the same yeah it wasn't the same it wasn't the gonna left wish order she would have a very, very different. <laughs> now, there's no question that the person. I had to be pregnant. Exactly. Okay, so you're carrying I, I you're doing this, the heavy lifting. I, win this I know, game. I know. But just for that brief period when you're and when you're traveling and all the rest, yeah. it, it, it creates a lot of additional stresses and pressures. So. Yeah, for sure. So taking a step back, the other thing that you need to do that's a little bit different from conventional IVF is and we're hoping this will change. Mm. At the moment, the legislation clearly says that if you are doing reciprocal IVF, one party is a donor and the other is a recipient. Now, we screen everybody for HIV and hepatitis. In order to bring samples into the lab, we have to. But the screening requirements for a donor are higher. You need to do additional HIV and hepatitis screening to make sure there's no recent infection or anything. It seems absolutely bananas Mm. to me that you can't recognize this these people as a couple who are intimate uh who if there is there it's being transferred back and forth anyway if there is the vanishingly rare situation where there is a viral disease of some description so i'd love to see that change i would love to see the what does that happen if a husband or male partner is giving sperm to his female partner no so why is yeah like why is that not treated as because because it's eggs going from a female to a female so they treat you functionally as if you were a donor from a different country yeah you have to be screened to the same standard but are those gametes different do they behave differently oh god no 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 yeah it's stupid yeah and we're hoping it'll change yeah, yeah. and there, there is there is talk about it changing but so what, does that just mean that there's a higher level of testing there involved? is there's, there's a whole bunch of additional blood tests and screens and one thing we've tried to do we've we've built that into the cost of the program and is that so why the cost is slightly higher than it would be with it's one of the IVF? it's one of the major okay. reasons why the cost is slightly higher yes let's talk about that because i know that some people maybe would be thinking of doing like just a, a standard IVF cycle and down the line they might think oh well now you know one like we did IVF used my own eggs had a baby we have embryos now my wife or my partner or whoever would like to use them but because of the testing that's really important if we didn't do the the viral testing at the the start then it makes it's not technically impossible it's not something we're doing okay and one thing I would urge people who are considering reciprocal IVF at all to do is if you think it's on the cards Go hard at it from the start. Yeah. Give yourself that opportunity. Okay. And and just 
do it properly and formally right from right from the outset. If you're sure it's something you don't want to do, fine. No yeah. harm, no foul. We'll do straight IVF or whatever yeah, you call yeah. it. Standard. <laughs> That's like a really bad joke. <laughs> <laughs> boom, boom. Um, <laughs> But uh, we can do a more standard cycle. But if it, if you think at any point that you might want to think about it, you can future proof it by by doing. It. And then hopefully in the fullness of time, those donor screening requirements will fall off and yeah. we'll be able to treat these people as normal couples. As you would with anyone else. Yes. Yeah. Um, so what I know this is like, how long is a piece of string? But do you have any indication of like success rates of of reciprocal IVF? Is it lower than it would be with IVF? No, I would I would say overall it's probably higher. Mm. Um, because and why you're would that be dealing with younger people? Yeah, as as a general rule, um, when you've got heterosexual fertility, mm. there's a natural for most people there's a natural delay between starting your family and realizing you're going to need assistance. Because usually they've been trying for a while. And well, they've decided, aged X, I we want to have a family mm-hmm. now. Then they try for, depending on their age and circumstances, yeah. six months, one year, two years, three years, and eventually they make their way through whatever all over the shop system there is. Do they go to their GP? Do they start yeah. talking to friends? Do they go and see an acupuncturist? There's a million different yeah. routes that will eventually feed into formal fertility treatment. Uh, female couples don't have that. Yeah, because they, they know. Well. There's conversations, yeah. but you're not going to get pregnant until yeah. you do something formal and fertility-based. For all based the trying it. in the world. Well, wishing one hand and so on and so forth. Um, so there's so straight away you've saved yourself potentially a year or two. Okay? Yeah. So you've got that. Um is it a slightly younger demographic? I suppose maybe, maybe not. I think it's probably in and around otherwise, yeah. uh, give or take the same age. And the final piece, just like I said earlier, you've got two bites of the cherry. Yeah. So even if you do find that maybe someone has some subfertility issues, you still have another whole right. person to, 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 to have a go with. So I that's so overall, the success rates would probably be a little bit higher than yeah. for conventional IVF. And what does that mean? Like, does that mean that it would, you know, be likely that someone might have a baby with their first cycle and I mean, some frozen embryos? I, th- I think you need to be very clear when you say cycle, what, mm. what that means. Yeah. So the standard line is if I can do a stimulation cycle and generate three embryos, the fastest way to get you pregnant, put all three embryos back in together. Yeah. But of course, I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. We want to transfer one at a time because that's the safe and responsible thing to do. Add a push two at a time. We've been around that already. So you have to think cumulatively. So if I've got somebody who's, say, 30 years old and has a really good ovarian reserve Mm. and there's no other problems at all, realistically, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that I could get three or four embryos out of that, potentially. Maybe Mm -hmm. maybe not, but, you know, it's not not, not an unrealistic expectation. Each of those embryos might have a 30 to 35% chance of giving you a baby, so that accumulates. Maybe you've got a 60 to 70% chance of a live birth from that that completed cycle altogether. Now... Add 10 years. Yeah. Results are still okay. I would say cumulatively, you're probably looking at 15, 20, 25% maximally. Yeah. You know, depending on depending on the numbers. So as always, infertility age does play a and, factor. And I think that's really important to understand because it's that old axiom when you have 
a woman come in looking to access treatment with donor sperm, either with or without a partner, they are not so much patients as they are clients. Mm. Now, clients is not a word I particularly like, but that's probably showing my vintage as well. I, 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 but I do think in this context, it is more appropriate. Mm. They are looking for service acquisition. They're looking for technical help and expertise, yeah. you know. And that should skew the odds and change the position. There's mm. no history of subfertility and, and, and all those other things. But it's still a hard old road to go mm. down. So it's really important to do the standard testing yeah. in the first instance, even if you're kind of, why do I have to do this? I know that, why would there be a problem here? Why, why, do, I, why do you think there might be a problem with my womb? Other people are getting pregnant all the time out there and yeah. you're not checking their wombs. Yeah. But that's true, but they're also not paying a grand for donor sperm. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. So, so you want to be sure when yeah, you're, you know, exactly. the stakes are higher that you're yes. giving yourself the best shot, really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so kind of just to finish up, something I'm sure that people ask a lot coming to the clinic is about, like, the legalities. So. And what what's going to happen when, when a child is born. So when you go through, the we have legislation, the Child Family Relationships Act of 2015, which was enacted in 2020. But don't worry about that. Don't worry about the five-year delay. Yeah. Um, that means that when you come through, both parties sign a consent form saying they are going to both be parents. And this is treatment. for any treatments. Any treatment using donor egg or donor sperm. In, in Ireland. Ireland. Yes. And the child is born in Ireland. And the child is born in <laughs> Ireland. So... Everything happens in Ireland. We can come back to that. Then when you have the child, you sign another form, mm. a declaration of parentage, SI546. And at that point, well, at all points through it, your details are given to the Department of Health. It's not an ideal situation. It's not one we're particularly happy about. Irrespective of whether or not the treatment is successful or not, mm. your details are given to the Department of Health. It's a legal requirement. And that means that they then go on the register. And that means your child can then access the register to find out who the donor is and get the donor details when they're 18 years old. It also suggests that maybe, and we don't know exactly what form this will take, that if the child requests a copy of their birth cert when they're 18 years old, they will be told there is additional information. Mm. And that additional information where they were conceived with the aid of donor gametes and this, the information on that donor can be found. In and that care. possibly would be something that would affect more heterosexual couples because obviously if you have a same-sex female couple, obviously any child is going to know that Absolutely. there is a donor involved, but sometimes with heterosexual couples this is, that information is not always this is, disclosed. This is a problem, yeah. yes. yes. Because, I mean, while we absolutely encourage couples to disclose that, that donor sperm or donor egg were yeah. used and we, there's good data that says that's better, I still think it's a parental responsibility and right to do so and I don't think yeah. the state should have a hand actor part yeah no I totally agree I mean I think I think it's very important to disclose all the information to your children but at the same time I don't think that that should be it's not your you decision know, to make for them for someone else and mm -hmm. it's not something that should just happen at the age of 18 imagine so, the shock yeah <laughs> you know so as you said that is provided everything happens within Ireland and in a clinic so anyone coming for reciprocal IVF will automatically both be parents. Yes. So this is the thing, though. The person who gives birth can be listed as mm -hmm. the mother because this is all to do with the Irish Constitution. Uh, a person who 
has a child exit their body mm-hmm. <laughs> is called a mother. So you can either go down on the birth cert as a mother, but you also have the option now to be called parent one. And then the second parent, who is the, in the case of reciprocal IVF, the donor, cannot also be called the mother because, again, under our constitution, there cannot be two mothers. So the donor parent will be called parent two, essentially, or just parent if if the other parent is being called mother. Hmm. Um, so I guess it's it's um you know it's a step in the right direction and that piece of legislation you know allows for this to happen whereas if we were having this conversation two years ago we would have said well no only the the recipient or the person who gives birth is going to be on the birth certificate um and the other illegal stranger so you know things have changed a lot the other thing i would really like to see happen is i would like to see that kind of matrix be applied retrospectively Mm to uh, female couples who had children not necessarily through reciprocal IVF mm. through, through standard IVF but they're a couple and they both want to be on the birth search yeah so I suppose there is um, like there are some amnesties uh, depending on what way you did it and if you used an Irish clinic if you used an anonymous donor you know th- so there are some mm. amnesties there but uh, for the most part they I suppose the Irish government have tried to make it as like paint by numbers as possible <laughs> so it's like what's the easiest way to legislate for this yeah. Irish clinic child born in Ireland yeah. donor registry There you go. Done. And we know that in reality, families are created in many, many, many other ways that don't always involve a fertility clinic. And again, that should be people's right and prerogative to choose how they want to build their family. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you can think that even if you're not the father, it's a matter of simplicity itself if all the parties want to, Mm. to go into hospital and say you are. And nobody's checking that. Oh, hundred, John, I could have brought you into the registry office and oh, yeah. said, "Put this guy on the birth cert." Would have said, "And they not would- <laughs> this guy again," but you know, otherwise. <laughs> but I could have. Yeah. And they wouldn't put. They wouldn't put my wife, who was their yes. biological or genetic yes. parent. You know. Yes. So it's bizarre, but thankfully things are it's improving. Are it's, improving. Yeah. It's going in the right direction. And it's great it's news for people who now want to. Um, think about starting their families exactly going forward so um thanks so much for chatting oh, as well. always on my favorite topic <laughs> reciprocal <laughs> you've done great I, work. i'll get i'll get a tattoo look, just, just for everybody out there if, 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 if you're listening if there's one person who has championed this space more than any other in the country it's 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 renee for years i've been talking to you about this um and and i hope that the community recognizes what you what you've done um, and how instrumental you were in getting getting that across the line and getting in and acted and, and, and just making things better. So well done you. Thanks, John. <laughs>